Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, wearing my welcome, welcome, welcome quarter zip, sitting next to Jeff mm-hmm. Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going well. How's it going with you? It's going great. You know, some people when they, because they like the welcome, welcome, welcome cadence on Twitter, uh-huh. they all say, I can't wait for the day that Jeff says, you know, it's just not going well, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, please don't do that. But no, uh, but I hope it's going well for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in, be sure to check out all the content we put out on the internet. Follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. Go to focuscompound.com and sign up for uh, investment write-ups for uh, from Jeff. What are, what are your views on the website and investment write-ups? Anything plan? Anything for the future? Any thoughts on it? Mm, there's there'll be some smaller companies probably. I don't think people will be that excited by it because they'll probably be like, "This is a little smaller and less liquid than I'd like." Really, less than like a hundred million small. There's and specifically with liquidity and obscurity and stuff like that. Yeah, there's a couple like that. Got it. Yeah. Well, to be on the lookout for that, go to focuscompound.com and sign up. Uh, So in today's podcast, we are going to do a little bit more of a free form. Uh, This is actually one of my favorite podcasts that we do. I think it is everybody else's as well, because we could talk about what's been going on a little bit more. So we haven't done a podcast since... Buffett and Munger held their annual meeting. All right. It was in California this year. What were your thoughts on it? Did you watch all of it? I did watch it, yes, on uh, Yahoo. Any thoughts on it? A lot of questions. It, it yeah. seems different. Like, all the questions they get nowadays, it's just kind of like, it's all, not all, but a lot of it, ESG, Bitcoin, right. philanthropy, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. Correct. Yeah. There's a lot of that. And I'm like, I wish, I wish it was more structured. I wish they filtered out <laughs> some of the questions. I think they try to filter out some things, yeah, and focus it more on the business. Sure, they talked about some things a little bit. They, I mean, they they got a hard question about, let's see, what was it about? Um, the, the comparing Progressive and Geico. They got a similar question a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and they kind of gave a lot of the information that I think is true about the strength that Geico has. That it's. Uh, doing well compared to everyone, but progressive. Progressive underwriting is going better, but Geico still has great uh, performance in terms of expenses, and that's an important part of the business and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but people are comparing it to the peers, right? People always talk about that. They're like, well, if their performance isn't as good as progressive, why is that? Everyone mm-hmm. always thinks that you need to be just as good as the best in that industry. Same thing with uh, the railroad, you know? If they're like, well, but Union Pacific did better this year or something. Why is that? Why are mm-hmm. you doing as well? Yeah. Um, Charlie at 97, still mm-hmm. sharp as ever. Right. Revealed the successor. He did accidentally reveal it. And then they, they, I think Berkshire released a press release afterwards or something, basically Buffett, confirming yeah. it. Confirmed that, it. Yeah. That uh, Greg is going to be the next CEO. If they were, if the replacement yeah. was done today. And yeah. Munger was so subtle about it. He's like, Greg will keep the culture. Yeah. <laughs> I, I should rewatch that and see what Buffett's face looked like. I wonder if he gave a little <laughs> nudge, like, "Well, that's out of the cat's out of the bag on that one." Yeah, right? uh, but they spoke a lot at the meeting, Greg and Ajit. Yes, yeah. So it was nice to hear them um, uh, talk about it. But no, I mean, overall, I, I thought it was a great meeting. A um, lot of questions on, uh, like I said, Bitcoins of and Munger's like, "Well, you're kind of putting the red flag before the bull here." Um, and talking about it, but, and it's funny too, when Buffett doesn't want to answer it, he just like, well, I'm going to defer that to Charlie. And then Charlie just comes in swinging. 
it's like he's swinging on behalf of Buffett because he knows that's what he's going to say. Yeah, I do the same thing. I avoid certain things. What Buffett said about Bitcoin is true. He's like, you know, everyone asking these questions, you know, everyone who's interested in this is long it. The people who are, are either long, you know, or they're not involved. So I'll only be making people happy who don't care. Yeah, if basically. I say what I think. So I can either lie to you or I can tell you the truth and upset everyone. And that's a feeling that I had talking to people about like um, Chinese reverse merger frauds things i get lots of questions about them and i'd say to them generally there's no point in me answering this question because if i tell you i think it's a fraud it's just going to upset you and in my experience you people still own the stock and stuff and if i uh say i'm you know it's not a fraud then i'm not telling you the truth so you mm -hmm. know it's kind of have to dodge the question yeah um uh i i would agree with that so yeah no that was it was good it was good to he, see them both up there together six feet apart yeah um, I wonder if we'll be in Berkshire next, or if we'll be in o Omaha next year. Well, if they can, then they will. I think he expects that it will. Mm -hmm. And, you know, probably. Um, uh, so 13Fs uh, uh, came out for some funds and stuff. Uh, Pabrai purchased Baba. He's following Munger into Alibaba. Okay. Uh, which was interesting. It sounds like he is completely done buying the sixty cent dollars. He's transitioned to maybe we the don't know what he owns outside the U.S. Mm -hmm. Right, um, uh, but that's what he's kind of publicly said, and you need to have colleges correct. And stuff. But if you look at past years where we know he owned sixty cent dollars and things, he also said I really need to focus more on the compounders. Yeah, so he yeah. said that for years and years. Yeah. yeah, we were talking about if you've read the book Richer, Wiser, Happier. It was funny hearing. Uh, my favorite chapter was uh, Pabrai's part. Yeah. Yeah, he used the F word, but like 20 times. I was like, all right, I love this guy now. This is great. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. So Alibaba. Yeah, I don't, I have like no opinion of Alibaba. I've been asked about it many times by people. I'm not. Have you been asked about it more so recently? Uh, no, I, it was one of the most common stocks I get asked about for a couple of years now. Really? Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think the financials, mm -hmm. if you look at yeah. it. EBD free cash flow 17 times, uh, EBD sales 5.7. Look at that, Kager in uh, revenue. It's at a 56% 10-year Kager going from about a billion, a little over a billion to 72.6 billion in 2020. Yeah, and then look at the, the multiples. They're not bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're expensive, right? But they're mm -hmm. not expensive for something growing that fast. This is something that you know a Peter Lynch or a um, Phil Fisher could buy into. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a cheap growth stock. It's not a, it's not a value stock, but it is a cheap growth stock. Um, and then it kind of checks all the boxes about compounders and all that. And people always love China too. So, yeah, I wonder if that's where a lot of value investors are going to start to look more. Really big market cap too, which yeah. always gets attention that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see if we could pull up data Roma on the super investor portfolios. Focus compounding on there yet? No, it's not. Okay. Um, Better not. <laughs> so it's always interesting. So like when they see like recent, recent activity, like reduce, right. you know, I mean, what is that him trimming? Because he says he doesn't do any of that, any of that sort of stuff. It uh, could be it, Todd or Ted. Right. So it would depend. You have to look at what those companies are. So the biggest one that they have that they trimmed is DeVita. Was there anyone bigger than that that he trimmed? Mm, well, yeah. So, well, Wells Fargo, but... Well, we know he's getting out of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. But yeah, other than that. But U.S. Bancor. So that's his. That's Berkshire. That's that's Buffett's. So oh, yeah. he, he trimmed a little, what, 1%? 1%, yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know if he's getting out of U.S. Bancorp or not. It seemed like he wasn't, but we'll see. It seemed, but he did sell a little bit of it at the same time he sold some of the other banks. And then really added to Kroger as well, 52.26%, right. assuming. But is he maybe getting billion. out of Bank of New York? Or what is it? What do we have here? Uh, no, he's, let's see. Nope, hasn't changed that. So I don't think he's changing the uh, bank ones. So the other ones that you're seeing, I think, are probably not Buffett. Uh, and then Liberty Global reduced 81%, 86000000 million. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that with the exception of the banks, if you see any changes with that, which I think are, could be, he could be done with what he was doing and that's capturing stuff from earlier in the quarter or something. Cause we knew he was selling out of those or adjusting those. I think everything else you see there is not Buffett. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 108 billion, the value of his Apple stake mm-hmm. as of when this was reported. Absolutely crazy, isn't it? Yeah. He trimmed a little bit of that last year uh-huh or last yeah how much of your time do you spend on data roma looking at what other investors are doing i've tr- tried to look at things like that but i've never found it a good source of ideas so i always believe it will be and then it never turns out to be mm-hmm. they're just very well-known stocks i guess things like that um they're just generally too big a lot of the things that we talk about if you search for them on data roma which you could you'll find that people don't even own them even bigger ones even the bigger regional banks that we talk about and stuff they all own the same few banks, you know, Bank of America, JP Morgan, things like that, they don't own a lot of variety to come up with good ideas. Part of that is just that they're not, I mean, there might be really good um, 13Fs to follow that are just over the reporting threshold. But of course, everyone's interested in the really famous people. Yeah, I'd be more interested in gathering like a good group of, you know, sub-billion funds, you know, sub-500 million, quite frankly. Right. And it's sort of like like um, Buffett at Berkshire, right? So he's been most famous for the last, you know, let's say, let's say 25 years or so, um, something like that since the January deal is a lot of his fame, but it would have been a lot more interesting to follow his ideas before that mm-hmm. than after, you know? So when you're at your most famous and he I, it was in the snowball somewhere where he said that, where he said, look, people listen to me the most now when I have the least in, in intelligent things to say than yeah. when they should have been listening to me when I had no money in the beginning, you mm-hmm. know? I always say that I think about our backlog. Like it's like assuming all things go well, like fifteen to twenty years from now, that's when it'll our backlog, like on YouTube and stuff like that, will become way more popular. And like the podcast, somebody actually commented that they're like, like Munger says, only the cultists come here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think that they're generally too big for me. Mm-hmm. Would be the answer. There's some that I look at and get ideas for. I think I've said that, like, um, if Tom Russo buys something in some country or some industry that I don't know that much about, it might get me interested in um, that, like I said, like that that industry or something, but not the actual company is buying because the company is usually too big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like he he uh, trimmed a lot. It's, I mean, you have no That's context always, us, right? Yeah. Th- he does that all the time. Mm-hmm. So he buys very little that you normally see. Um, and then everything else is uh, very small amounts of uh, trimming stuff. If you notice his top like 10 positions or something is probably like all of his money is in it. And then there's lots of other positions there. So he's usually reducing by a similar amount, which I think it just has to do with the size of the assets under management is my guess. Mm-hmm. Right. Because when he starts to buy something, you usually see... Uh, that he'll eventually buy quite a bit of it. Um, so if we look here, what did he buy? Did he buy Alibaba? Uh, it looks like it just says buy. Yeah. So that could become so that two hundred fifty three million. See what that is, but so it's a two percent or something of the fund now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So of his assets under management, I should say. Um, so that can go from two to you know ten or whatever with him, but if you see it cross over like one percent, 
then probably it's something he intends to buy a lot of if he likes it over time. Um, and so, so sort of to me, that whole filing there, all it tells you is Alibaba. Yeah. There's nothing else. There. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's interesting. And that's, he, he doesn't change his portfolio a ton. So that's usually what you get from him is like maybe one thing, if that, a quarter. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. The, the ones that they change more often, right? are less interesting to me because they, they don't necessarily stick with it, you know? Yeah, you can see right here, right? So he bought, um, let's see, Ash Teed Group, right? He added 365%, but it's, you know, changed the portfolio 1%, and where Bob was 2.32%. Yeah, 1% though for him is pretty big mm-hmm. uh, because I'd say he only usually has like 10 or 12 stocks or something that are in that category. Everything else is just like a tracker position. Mm-hmm. Speaking of this, um, Pershing Square, they acquired a 6% stake in Domino's Pizza, okay. which is right up uh, Pershing Square's alley. I mean, he's yes. been pretty successful in anything food, Chipotle, Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Um, they did McDonald's at one point, I believe Wendy's as well. So he's made a lot of money in food. Um, uh, I think it was at a cheaper price, right, with Domino's. You think it's a cheap price? I think he, no, no, I don't think it's cheap price today. Yeah. I think he bought it at a cheaper price than today, right? Um, let's see. It was a new stake, so we could see by his on Dataroma. Where's he at here, Bill Ackman? I wonder if it gives a... Well, you could click on it, and then it'll give you a history of it. Uh, reported price, $367. $367 is the average? Oh. Yeah, well, well, there you go, 432 yeah, it's a little different. It's uh-huh. not a huge difference. Yeah. Um, uh, EV to sales about five times. EBIT margins, 17%. Uh, EV to free cash flow, 36 times. 10 year Kager on revenue has been 10%. Uh, but the free cash flow, 10 year Kager has been about 17%. EPS too. Um, a tech company that sells pizza. Yeah. I, sh- I actually tweeted about Domino's a little bit recently uh, because it's just. The it had a two hundred sixty nine million dollar market cap, and of course I cherry picked out t- two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's you know sixteen point four billion. It's been <laughs> it's very crazy. successful since IPO, right? Yeah, IPO'd around the same time as Google. Is that true? I think so. So people could compare it and Google, um, and see how each of them have done and stuff. But I would say it's sort of comparable. Mm-hmm. It was a good time for IPOs, if I remember right. Um, in that it was not. The, the market wasn't very popular. So some good companies like Google and uh, Domino's went public. Mm-hmm. I think I have that right, that they would have been pretty similar in time. So they went uh, public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was a, a turnaround story as well for Domino's there. So they ran the whole like, we right. know we suck campaign. Mm-hmm. And the, and they, you know, did a the completely revamp of their pizza, their sauce, their yep. packaging, everything. And, um, you know, really turn the company around. But what's interesting is notice if you're watching on YouTube right now, the multiple we rate, and of course, this is out 2008, but going from a 5 PE to whatever it is today, you know, whatever I said, like 35 times or whatever. I mean, you could get a pretty dramatic return just that was right. growth. And what's interesting about that, of course, is that you would have expected earnings to go up a lot at the beginning of that period that they would have been depressed. And now because of COVID and everything, you'd expect the earnings are overly inflated. Mm hmm. So you're putting a really high multiple on something that you think is cyclically very high. And before you're putting a low multiple on something that you would think would be cyclically very low in terms of the overall economy and everything. So it's interesting. Um, yeah, a lot of optimism in the stock. You know, there's what, four publicly traded dominoes around the uh, franchisees, master franchisees yeah. around the world. So mm-hmm. those would be ones to look at too. Yeah, uh, maybe more than four. So I, there's at least four. 
There might be another one that I'm not thinking of. I, I think there's one um, smaller one too. What are your thoughts generally towards those? Uh, pretty good. If they have the right people running it, uh, running a Domino's franchise for an emerging market or something would be attractive. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're not all emerging market stuff. There's a UK one and stuff like that. Because I've looked at a couple. I believe they have like Wendy's. I mean, there's a bunch of different ones. I would like seen. Domino's the best that way i think pizza travels pretty well i think it has a system that's very simple and very technologically driven um you know people are not buying it for the quality of the food they're buying it for the the technology that it has the speed that it can do those things and um the habitual use of it and how automatic it is so damn quick too you pull out your phone and you click two buttons and it's done and then Yep. The, you know, my favorite part is tracking it. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's in the oven. Oh, they're packaging it. Oh, it's on its way. Yeah. It's so easy. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that um, Domino's franchises and other um, countries would be an interesting thing to look at if you like the people running it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, So we had a question from somebody that I thought was interesting. And he said, what are your biggest obstacles to successful investing? Um... Finding enough ideas is by far the biggest obstacle, yeah. Finding ideas even just in the earliest stages to pursue for, you know, um, any amount of time is really difficult. Um, You know, that's one of the reasons why we don't do a lot where we just take questions of people throwing out different stock ideas because nine out of ten times it's just immediately not really crossing the levels that you would need to look interesting as a stock and as a business. What are those things that, you know, from like a pre-qualified perspective where you immediately disqualify it? Well, I wouldn't say would immediately disqualify it because, that you know, it's a mistake to do that. So you have to look deeper into it. But most business, most publicly traded companies don't really create a lot of value over time. So most aren't very good businesses. Um so they're not good enough to pay the kinds of multiples that we do in the stock market. If you threw darts at the at stocks, um, most of what your dart would hit would not be having very good returns if bought and held indefinitely. Uh, your returns really come from a few stocks working out really well. So I think that the prices that stocks tend to trade at, at least for the last 20 years or so, um, are really high versus a mediocre sort of company. Mm-hmm. You know, Ben Graham operated for a time in things where you could buy an average company and do okay over time because the average price on the stock wasn't that high. But lately that hasn't been true. So without buying better quality companies, I think that you're paying too much for um, most businesses. We recorded a piece of content recently for something else related to work. And somebody had asked, um, you know, like, how do you sift through the hundred ideas that you looked at and ultimately decided on the ones that you do? And you gave a really interesting answer, which is true, how, you know, it's very rarely price, mm-hmm. right? That's usually not the overriding factor that goes into it. It's really, I mean, from afar, it's pretty easy to judge if, you know, the company's cheap or whatever. Um, but it just really comes down to the actual business itself and, you know, the high qualityness of it and competitive positioning and really thinking about it from that perspective yeah because we generally invest in things with the plan to hold it for a while and get returns from the business um you can also do other things where you buy and trade them based on what maybe what you think other people might be doing and stuff like that you could buy them when they're extremely cheap because they're very hated so you know you could buy 
a hotel in the early days of COVID or something and expect the stock to go up that way. You don't need it to be a good business over time. But yeah, I would say the problem with most, that that's the issue. Most stocks are not good businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think people overestimate the quality of most businesses, most publicly traded companies. Not just overestimate them, but assume that they'll be similar when they may not be. So like they kind of assume that a high quality business and a lower quality business will create, should trade at similar PEs and will create somewhat similar value over time. And I don't think that's true at all. I think that over a few decades, the higher quality ones will produce a lot more value than others. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting study for people to do for themselves, right? So like if you psychoanalyze or just looked at your own portfolio, like how much of your returns have come from the actual business themselves as opposed to like a multiple re-rating by the market or you right. know, something along those lines. And we spoke to people like that where they said, you know, I, I bought this and I sold out, but then the stock, you know, really fell after I sold it and I really owned it for maybe a year or a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So it's like from like a process versus outcome standpoint, it's like, yeah, the outcome is great, but I don't exactly know how I was on the process side, which is the most important part. Right. You know, but again, I guess that comes down to what you, what you're setting out to do. If you want to be an investor, you probably don't want to think like that right but there's some people that are so great at the the beauty contesting and with the multiple ratings and stuff like that yeah um i'm just looking at in terms of the odds of it if you're paying very high prices for things you have to be very sure about them it's much easier when you're paying low prices or average type prices at the most um once you get past the very low teens pe uh even into the teens you're starting to take some risk that the quality of the business really has to be higher than average. If you stay below that, then you might be okay. Um, all you need to do is make sure that it consistently, you know, is an okay business. Uh, but as you expand beyond that, you really run into big problems. And so when people are paying 20 times earnings and more, uh, it's a big problem. There's very, very little that um, jumps out as being really cheap now. Um, in terms of being things that are easy enough to predict and stuff like that, being in the industries that we would look at and all of that. Uh, but that's not a feature of like this last year, the stock market going up a bit. It's more of a longer term thing that's been happening for the last few years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts towards um, inflation or potential inflation coming into the market? Um, and like how you would think about that with your portfolio. We're always very careful about inflation. We've always been very careful about it. Um, It's a major risk and something to consider. Uh, We've always been careful about the possibility of inflation happening and being higher and about um, interest rates rising Mm -hmm. um, and about not buying things on the expectation of Low interest rates or something like that. Are you looking for AMR? Yeah. Yeah, AMRK. Yeah. Quick FS will have it, yeah. Um, My feeling on it is uh, the only, I mean, the only big thing that I've said before and will repeat again where I differ with other people, I guess, is that I don't think it's relevant to uh, refer to inflation expectation stuff and saying that inflation expectations are well anchored and low and all that. I think that's nonsense. I think that inflation expectations, if you've had a period of low inflation for a while, will expect low inflation to continue. If you've had a period of high inflation, they'll expect high inflation to continue. So I would expect that if people have been assuming in polls and surveys of them, the consumers, that inflation would be 2% a year for the next few years or whatever, after it had been 0 to 2% for several years, 
then after a year or two of inflation of 5%, they'll start assuming it'll be 5%. I don't think that inflation expectations are relevant in decision-making um, because I don't think that they're in any sense anchored. I think they're just backwards looking and, and affected by recency and stuff. Um, that's just predictions about everything. That's not a knock on consumers or large groups of people versus experts. Experts do the same thing. They'll You'll see that they'll change their expectations to meet what people uh, are expecting that way. So I just think that expectations do play a huge part in inflation. There's no doubt about it. But you can't use current or past expectations to predict what future expectations will be. Mm-hmm. Future expectations will be different than current expectations. And it's future expectations that in future periods will drive inflation. So the fact that inflation expectations are low or were low, just I don't think is relevant. And I've never thought that it was relevant. Um, it's relevant in the current period. It explains why sure. it is what it is now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, it's just that's just kind of like saying there's momentum. And that's true. Inflation has a lot of momentum to it. Um, but I think that, you know, that's kind of silly when people talk about that. And you'll see that expectations, I think, will radically shift as different numbers come in. I think I think expectations will tend to track actual inflation. Yeah. So as inflation changes, people's expectations will change radically. Um, the, the, you know, and that's what you see with the stock market and stuff. The stock market goes up 10% a year for 10 years. People all expect it'll go up 10% a year. Mm-hmm. If it goes nowhere for 15 years, they'll say, you know, bonds are a better place to put your money than stocks. Mm-hmm. It's They're not predicting the future. They're just telling you what the recent past was, you know, and extrapolating into the future. So, yeah, so that's the only thing I would say is that I don't think that it's relevant that inflation expectations recently were very low. I think that makes no difference. Uh, they, they just will change. The, the idea that they're anchored is not realistic, I think. Amark Precious Metals is a fun one to always pull up because <clears throat> we talked about it on the podcast and the stock's gone from, I mean, if we talked about it in the end of 2019, you know, 14 or 12 bucks mm-hmm. to 54. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. I, t- I think I wrote it up like it was 12 or something like that. And I said maybe $8 or $9 worth of it was um, very solid investment value. And then the rest of it was a small price that you pay to kind of speculate. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's obviously gone crazy because of big um, uh, spreads in physical metal stuff, physical gold and physical uh, silver. If you look, this gives you an idea of what I talk about with like um, the way that people put the highest multiples on the most cyclically high earnings and the lowest on the lowest earnings. If you look, you can see that this company's producing earnings, it will not repeat. It might repeat it for a year if you're lucky. Um, but as a result, you know, you have just inappropriate levels of on the stock, but it's hard for them to avoid that because if you look, the multiple is very, very low right now, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you look the, we can, um, this is a pretty good example. So last year's earnings were, let's see, uh, how much in terms of EPS we've got there? $4 and 31 cents. Okay. $4, 31 cents. What was the highest EPS of a year before that? Like a buck thirty, a buck four, a buck seventy one in two thousand eleven. Okay. So, in a sense, if you want to have a PE of even like, um, what's their PE here? It says it's nine, but that's it's not the trailing twelve. It's actually lower on a trailing twelve month basis. I think that's from the actual year end twenty twenty. Um, so to put it on a, uh, to have any sort of low multiple on it, right? You, in a sense, like people will start buying it just because it seems like it has a low multiple mm-hmm. because 
this year's earnings were so high. The important thing to look at is like something like gross profit more than doubled. And with this company, revenue is irrelevant because the way the accounting works, the real top line is gross profit. So it's sort of like sales more than doubled. Um, But if you look, you can look at like operating profit. So operating profit was 30 million. Yeah. Yeah. And the highest it's ever been in any other period is 16. Yeah. And really it's probably the number they've hit more often is like 12. Right. So it seems like it's two to three times their average earning power. Cause there's also years where they lost a little money or made nothing. You can see it also just in terms of the return on equity and stuff like that. Um, this is a company that actually, when I wrote it up, I think traded around book value. Normally people would have it around book value and then it exploded, you know? Um, but it's just a speculative thing. I described it kind of like an investment bank, uh, type thing, like basically doing trading. Um, and so it trade the stock trades like that, that you'll see. Um, it obviously the earnings will collapse at some point and then presumably there's no support for the stock at that point you know, in terms of like price to, that's what you see there with like price to book. So let's say, let's say there comes a period where earnings are nothing or close to nothing um, as there has been in the past. The question then is where, if people will buy it based on like price to book and stuff, will they buy it at four times book, three, two, one, you know, what would it take? How far does it have to drop until um, value investors start to buy it and hope for a cyclical recovery on that basis? So it shows you that buying something that's cyclically out of favor for a moment does work. You could just, this is what we talk about all the time with like net nets and stuff. You buy it and then there'll be, Buffett's talking about there's some hiccup. You don't know what it'll be, but a lot of these COVID things are that way. Um, you, I mean, there's net nets that were involved in steel stuff. They're up much bigger than any tech things or most tech things. Um, things that were related to anything like that because they were so cheap. And then they hadn't had any earnings for a long time. Like their earnings were so poor. But then in a moment of scarcity, you suddenly make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, you could imagine now if you're running a lumber mill or something, suddenly you are making money when you haven't before. And that happens with net nets, right? There's some shortage or something in your industry and suddenly you make a lot of money and then people price you on a PE basis. But that's your one puff, you know. Mm-hmm. Get out. Um, do you, what, what are some of those steel companies? Do you have any off the top of your head? Oh, well, an obvious one is Friedman Industries, which we talked about, FRD. Is the stock going bonkers? Let's see. So this gives you an idea if you look at like last year and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So you can see how big the recovery was in it. And that's because it was a net net that wasn't really making anything. Um, it has a very simple business that's really just based on, um, what you'll see with the, uh, actually we talked about it before, but uh, that basically it should benefit probably if you see higher steel prices and just higher inflation, um, over time. But what I thought was interesting is let's see if we can find it, um, I don't know if you have the most recent quarter. Do you have the most recent quarter? Let's see. No, they have December. Okay. What you should see, though, is that there's a big increase in gross profit um, for a quarterly basis versus in some years, the gross profit is basically nothing. And when you do that over a very large amount of sales, uh, 
with a commodity type company, then you can suddenly see large gains, which is very similar to Amar Precious Metals, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a business that's very big versus the size of the market cap, what it was. And so if you look like, um, you could look at the key ratio so you could see like price to sales or something from past years was low. And so this is also just what a net net is, right? So say you're cheap versus your inventory, right? And then in the quarter inventory value goes up 50% because the price of steel goes up 50%. Then you could imagine that if you were trading at one times inventory or something, your stock needs to go up 50% just to stay in line, mm -hmm. you know? And so when you're cheap versus revenue, you're cheap versus inventory, if there's a shortage condition, then suddenly you make a lot of money. Um, and obviously that's something that happened here or will happen this year. I don't know if it's captured in last year's numbers, but it's going to be this year. Yeah, look, it's they were at a $31 million market cap and now they're at you know 72. Yeah, but I mean, even more than that is if you look at like the earnings that are likely to happen this year or just even in a single quarter, um, they're really significant versus what the market cap was. Um before this happened and uh the market cap stuff's a little misleading because it's not even stuff that's really in the business they own some well you have the tangible book value there they own some um land and uh they were investing in pp and e and stuff so it's not even things like that uh but yeah and the market cap was decreasing generally up until that point um it paid a dividend and stuff it had it's has for a very very long time mm -hmm. um it just it, it looked before this happened it wouldn't have looked speculative to people it would have just looked like very boring not likely cheap. to make a lot of money cheap net net and a lot of things like that you've seen big recoveries in, obviously but this is just what you see with a commodity type thing that occasionally it makes a lot of money and then it goes back down and stuff and so uh yeah, I don't know anything about graph tech lately. But yeah, you have your graph techs and your microns and things like that where mm -hmm. they make money. Those are periods of shortage things, which is similar to what you're seeing with Amar Precious Metals and with Freeman Industries. I would call them commodity businesses. They make a lot of money when there's a shortage in the industry. Um, we talked about, what was it, Lakeland Industries? Yeah, I was going to say, we just talked about yeah. that in the last one we did, last podcast. Last yeah, couple. now some people make believe that those conditions will continue. I think some of the expectation with Micron for people is that those conditions will continue. Um, that there'll be conditions of shortage for a while, that maybe the industry has rationalized a lot more and things like that. Yeah. And you, that's what you said about them, right? So they did $44 million last year. And right. They've never done that in their history, it doesn't look like. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing more than... This is the one where I really caution people not to buy these stocks. I don't think it's a good idea to use the highest ever earnings. Uh, we talk about it and do it sometimes with companies where I don't think it makes a big difference. You're a food company, you're an advertising company, you're an insurance company, you're a bank, whatever. Your highest, your most recent earnings might be your record highest earnings, but they're probably within 10% or something of your second highest earnings. Um, I would still think that any stock you like a lot should look fairly cheap versus the second highest earnings. You shouldn't just use the highest. Mm -hmm. And there are people, I mean, it's hard to believe, but there are people who will say Lakeland Industries is trading at what, six times earnings? Yeah, I've seen that. Too. Well, that's why we've talked about it. <laughs> right. But that's that's insane. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that, that common sense doesn't, that makes no sense, right? If uh, It's true that a screener shows that, mm -hmm. but you're giving up your human brain of thinking about something using common sense that the second highest they ever had was 12, right? Mm -hmm. So... A human being looking at this doesn't say, oh, it's trading at six times earnings. You at least are simultaneously thinking it's trading at six times highest ever earnings. 
but it's trading at 24 times second highest ever earnings, right? You keep both of those ideas in mind at a minimum. That doesn't mean you have an opinion that it's going to drop by a huge amount. But sometimes when people talk about this, they say, it seems to me that they say, well, but isn't there a chance that it'll stay high or something? You know, well, that's what you like want to spend your time thinking about, right? Yeah, I don't think there's any chance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could for a year. Now, what if there but was it doesn't a, make sense? That's not how capitalism works. No. What if there was a fundamental shift in the business? Correct. If there's a fundamental shift in the business, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I would agree with that. Um, in those cases. But if you look at like over you know ten years or whatever, and the highest operating profit was you know twelve million in 2016, and the rest of that it's really been I don't know on average just eyeballing it five six maybe over you know all the ten years, right. and then in 2000 you know last year it's 44 million. That's something that you would you know be very cautious about, or at least have that in your mind. Yeah. So when I talk about companies that I'm skeptical of. Um, the fact that they're fast growing and they have low multiples and stuff. The reason is because I'm thinking in terms of like the competition that will come in and what will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reverse too, when there's a temporary problem, we've talked about that before. Uh, when you have a company that buys cotton and it's cotton costs go up a lot, it buys oil and it's oil costs go up a lot, you know, it'll find a way to ration that down or that price will come down because at, there are ways to produce more oil. There are ways to produce more cotton. There are ways to substitute things. Um, same sort of things here where I would think, in la- I mean, what's the logic here that people are going to keep using protective things sure. for COVID after it's a threat? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, obviously I'm in the same boat as you. Yeah, I get it. I mean, it might be possible, but then if it is possible, then the market, my problem with that is, okay, That that's possible after SARS you had people in Asia in many cases using more of protective things whether or not there was a higher risk of that um so it creates a perception increased risk perception okay so that could increase the size of the market but if you increase the size of the market then wouldn't someone try to compete with you if there was really a big market for um these sorts of things then why wouldn't Hanes and Clorox and companies that are adjacent in some way to these things either because they make clothing things or they make cleaning things or whatever want to compete more and stuff why wouldn't um you know companies that make uh distributors of stuff make private label things for it um all of that you know like Mm -hmm. if you make a product that is being used right now by by grocery stores right then why wouldn't um, Bunzel, which makes uh, all sorts of disposables, sells all sorts of disposables to those companies or Sealed Air or any of those kinds of companies that do things adjacent to packaging for safety, cleanliness, whatever, also expand into that. Of course, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like they didn't before because it was a small market. So either, so I just don't believe that, that it'll stay a small market and not attract competition. Um, well, it's getting back to the whole TAM thing, right? When you see a lot of these write-ups, they always reference the total adjustable market as if no competition is going to come in and try to compete that away. Right, which is why Buffett did the thing about the cars this year at the annual meeting. Because he was saying, if electric cars are big, almost all of them are going to fail. These stocks, you know, they're going to go zero. That's what happened to all the car companies before. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's a... Uh, that that's what happens if it's a big competitive market obviously mm-hmm. um 
those are interesting because those are valued high without any earnings and stuff. So it's a little different, but if they're, so, I mean, it makes sense why people wouldn't go into electric cars because a bunch of companies probably look at it and say, well, there's no money be made there. Maybe they will eventually get into it, but if they do an analysis that isn't based on having a stock that way, you know, um, if they do how much profit can we make their analysis shows, Oh, well maybe we can't make any profit. So let's not do it. But when you have something like this, it just seems to me even private companies and stuff will get into this. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you could make stuff that has to do with COVID, say you're a textile company doing something that has to do with that, or you're making uniforms for things, you're making whatever. Yeah, you shift. Y you think I'll shift into doing this. Mm -hmm. I'll make masks and things. You know, small businesses will do this. We knew a freaking food company that went into selling or to they were hand sanitizer, right? They were thinking about it. Yeah. Oh, no, lots of companies. Yeah. yeah. And the clothing companies went into masks and things mm -hmm. like that. Sure. Um, so, I mean, either to me, either it won't last or the other people will get involved in it a little bit different than something like Amark precious metals, right? Because if you had something where in the early days of an industry, you were big in it, then if it gets big, you're likely to still stay a commanding presence in it. So if you developed, let's say you develop, I mean, it's like, um, it's like Moody's and S and P and stuff. If you were big on rating things when bond, bond ratings were a tiny market, and the fact they get to be a huge market later still makes it too hard for others to get into it. They would have wanted to, but you became the name that everyone trusted early on in the process, or you became the exchange that everyone used or the website that they used. You know, mm -hmm. If everyone started using Google search early on and then it becomes a bigger advertising market and stuff, well, it's too late for people, other uh, competitors to get involved. You know, So there are businesses where there are moats and everything around it, but I think that probably manufacturing um safety supplies and stuff like that for protective clothing and all that stuff is not one of them um especially because look how easy it was for them to increase it it's a good point yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. It, they didn't have any trouble do, i mean not not that they didn't have any trouble i'm sure they had a ton of trouble but it was possible for them to do mm -hmm. and I, I mean they've never even come close to hitting those numbers. i mean look how many competing vaccines they're going to be like people are all excited about how much money a company could make by coming with a vaccine. At first, it might have seemed, oh, well, there'll be one effective vaccine, one company will develop it, they'll be worth a ton. Now, there's so many vaccines in so many different countries that they're likely to develop over time and use that you'll go, oh, well, even if everyone's getting a shot every year for this thing, how much is my company going to actually make off of this? Mm -hmm. There's so much competition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, And that would have been something that people would have thought would be a very wide mode if, before um the first vaccine came out people would have thought what would be a really wide moat thing to have would be a covid vaccine and eventually it's not going to be a very wide moat there's going to be pretty close substitutes that everyone can choose from you know that different countries and stuff so you know you have to do something that's special to keep that kind of um really high earnings from one period uh from before then so there had to have been like a fundamental shift in the business Something along those lines. Yeah, like, let's one, say this company, they, I don't know. The ones that are complicated. Up a new plan or something. The ones that are complicated are the things like Tesla, right? Because there is a real shift and a possibility of a tipping point in things and having to do a scale and everything that things could really get different in the future. So they could be able to hold on to a sales growth that they have. Uh, you could argue that that's possible. And it might be true, right? So you could see that developing into a really big market, whereas previously it wasn't a big enough market. I don't buy that with protective um, uh, clothing stuff and things like that having to do with or cleaning things or stuff like that having to do with COVID. But I do buy that it's a possibility that electric cars will be much bigger in the future than they were in the past. Um, and so then gains that Tesla had that track that would make sense. Um, 
the question though is how much are there is there growth in the industry versus how much is there growth in competition that's always what i'm looking at and saying i think that growth and competition will be at least as great in many cases i think often you'll do better by investing in a industry that's not growing very fast where competition is much more muted i don't think you should pursue industries where there's a lot of competition going into them mm -hmm. i think that's the worst sign you know for an investment is to always avoid things in which competition is really heating up um especially at high multiples anything where there you have you're, where there's news about other people building plants doing the same thing you're doing is probably not an industry that you want to be really excited about getting into mm -hmm. because that is the problem. I mean, that's what commoditizes an industry and everything is asset growth in the industry by yourself or by your competitors. But certainly um, it's a thing that you want to avoid. And a lot of the most popular hottest stocks in any period are actually things in which additional investment is going into them. Yeah, I always talk about... Um how one of my first jobs was working at a pumpkin patch, mm -hmm. pumpkin farm. And in the fall, they host like uh, like a festival or whatever on the weekends. And um, I was talking to the family last time I was back in Illinois and they were telling me that I think people from San Antonio came and visited and basically took notes on their place. And, you know, mm -hmm. they talked with them. They went out to lunch about just different ideas. And then I was like, does that bother you? And I'm like, no, we're not competing with each other. We're here and they're in San Antonio. So we just, they all bounce ideas off each other. Right, yeah. I mentioned the Piggly Wiggly book a long time ago, and it was interesting because Piggly Wiggly developed a lot of different things, or it was the first big one, I should say, to do many things that all became standard in retail. So then eventually every retailer everywhere was copying it. Uh, and that's possible with retail stuff, and it's possible in a lot of industries. In most industries, you don't have sort of uh, technical things that can't be copied by others, right? Um or loyalty to your brand or any of those sorts of things, which is always the concern with, um, you know, when you have a big jump up in earnings, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, for the most part, I'd say if you had a big jump up in earnings during COVID, that's very, very unlikely to be maintained because it was an unusual period. Mm -hmm. The same thing with a big decline. I wouldn't worry that much about a big decline during COVID. I wouldn't worry much about a big jump. Sometimes it can change behavior, and we've talked about that. I think that it has harmed movie theaters because of how long it went on and how much it changed certain things about opening up testing of other stuff. I think it harmed office space, not because uh, people won't feel safe in offices ever again, but simply because people now realize, oh, maybe we did a test and we don't need as many people in offices as we yeah, thought. Companies, yeah, companies as well. Right. So they, but they wouldn't have felt, but JP Morgan wouldn't have run a test if Wells, if they didn't know that Wells Fargo also wasn't having people in the offices. Yeah. But if you can make everyone stay home, then it's safe to run the test. Mm -hmm. Right. I've said that about like um, 24 7. I think a bunch of retailers will not return to 24 7. Walmart wouldn't have run a test of let's try not running our not having our stores open overnight. But once they know that everyone else is not open overnight, it's a good time they to run tests. They can copy that, yeah. And so everyone can test out shorter hours and things like that. Um, so I think that's true with office stuff, and I think that it's true with with movie theaters because they tested streaming things they would never have otherwise tested the the um, studios. So over a period of time, that does shift things. Um, so some of those losses might be kind of permanent that way. And some of the gains that some places had might be permanent too. I mean, you could have some gains that you picked up customers you wouldn't otherwise, you know, if, which is the argument with things like dominoes and stuff. I, I wouldn't really believe that's true so much. I don't think that dominoes picked up a lot of customers during COVID they're going to hold on to and stuff, but it's possible. I mean, cause net, it probably drew in more competition. 
more food delivery funding happened because mm -hmm. of COVID, all of that. I mean, on net, I think in the long run, it doesn't benefit a company like Domino's because it even drew more attention to delivery stuff and to technology investments and to all the things that they do really well. Mm -hmm. Sure. They're really good at having an app, technology, yeah. delivery. I was like, wow, we should really shift this way. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if anything, it just has more people. It's not like an awareness it. thing. Right. Whereas they were in it earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it reduces the mode, I guess, a little bit over time. Sure. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in with the both of us here today. If you want to ask questions of us that we will answer on the Freeform podcast, uh, DM them to me uh, at Focus Compound on Twitter, or you could email me, Andrew, at FocusCompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for the support. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening to this podcast. A rating and review goes a very long way for the both of us, and we will see you in the next podcast.